We are in week three of The Beautiful Mess. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know we're in the middle of our 40-day adventure, and we're doing seven sermon series along with small groups and a devotional guide to talk about this beautiful mess. If you have your devotional guide with you throughout the sermon today, there is a spot in here to take notes on page 41. So if you'd like to have that with you, you can jot down a few notes. We are in week three, and the message today is a gracious mess. A gracious mess. So now that we've got all of the business out of the way, did you guys notice I was wearing a judge's robe and carrying around a gavel? Anybody notice that? Not at all. (laughs) Did you wonder why? Well, I've been thinking about a career move. And this week, uh, you know, uh, the title, The Honorable Judge Annie Perdue Olson. Sounds kind of good. It has a good ring to it, doesn't it? I kind of like it. No, actually, I'm not thinking about a career move. I'm stu- you guys are stuck with me for a while. I'm not going anywhere. But I w- did think about becoming a judge when I was in high school. It was one of the career moves that I was thinking about doing. And the reason is because I feel like I'm really good at making decisions. I feel like I can take a look at all the situations that are out there, hear all different sides of the stories, hear the different perspectives, and I can be able to hone in on what seems right. I'm really good at that. And I like being right. (laughs) So I thought maybe being a judge would be a good career move for me. Well, I think that our scripture in Luke that we're going to be talking about today as a part of this message has something to say about my motivation to be able to decide what's right and what's wrong as a judge. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 and 38. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given unto you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If we engage in judgment and condemnation, it cycles back on us. Because if I feel judged then I'm going to start judging others. And when they feel judged, they're going to start judging others. And what happens is, is we, it perpetuates this isolation. This judgment that we do with each other separates us from one another, and it perpetuates isolation. Judgment is one of the biggest obstacles and barriers to being able to experience true community. So today in our time together, I want to look at this verse in Luke and talk more about this judgment cycle that we fall into, why we fall into it, how we fall into it, and how grace and forgiveness can set us free from it. So before we go further, let's open up in prayer. Jesus, I just thank you for the beautiful weather. I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for another day that you have given us to be able to glorify you. And so, Lord, I ask right now that your presence will be in this place. I ask right now that in all that we do today as we worship together, that we will bring glory to you. I ask for this message, Lord, that you will just anoint it with your word, your spirit, your voice, to be able to speak to each of us, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for your presence in this place. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, the reality is, is that if we look in each one of our closets... Hanging there on the hanger is a judge's robe. And on the shelf above the hangers, there sits the gavel. 
And at some time or another, maybe not very often, but at some time or another, we have gone into the closet, we have pulled the judge's robe off the hanger, we have put it on, and we have picked up the gavel. We may not even know that we've done it because sometimes things happen so fast and we go in there and we get the judge's robe and we don't even realize we've done it. And it feels so right to have it on that we don't even know that we are wearing the judge's robe. We begin to make decisions. We begin to make judgments about people, oftentimes based on outward appearances. What clothes are they wearing? What are their physical features? What kind of a job do they have? What kind of a place do they live in? What do they do for a living? How do they work? As a, what's their work style? Are they organized or disorganized? Are they clean or are they messy? And we make judgments about these differences among us. Maybe some are good and some are bad. Or maybe just some are better than others. But we make these judgments. About two weeks ago, I was sitting in my living room and the news was on in the background. And there was a little excerpt in the news that was talking about moms who were getting involved in different community groups for moms. And I started to tune in because these moms were talking about how they didn't feel like they could connect very easily with other moms. And as they were questioned by the interviewer about why they didn't feel like they could connect, they were talking about their fear of being judged. If they get together with other moms and their kids start acting up, they feel afraid that the other moms will look at them and say that there's something wrong with their parenting. And then if their kids do act up, and maybe they do something or don't do something to discipline their child, then they'll be judged because they maybe aren't parenting the way that they should. And listening to these moms, you could just hear it. You know, at the time when you have young children is a time when sometimes you feel the most isolated especially from other adults. And you could just hear the cry for community coming from them, but the fear of judgment held them back. The fear of judgment kept them from engaging in community with other moms who could probably help them out, who could probably really create some level of support for them. But judgment stood in the way. You see, when we pass judgments on different ways of doing things, different ways of thinking about things, different ways of behaving, when we classify them as right and wrong, we isolate people. We are so sure that our perspective is right. We are so sure that we have looked at everything that there is to look at and we have the right perspective that we can't possibly see how anyone else could see it a different way because it feels so right, it seems so right. We all put on this robe at times. But every judgment that we make, every time we put on this robe, we're assuming a position of superiority over others. We're assuming that our way is right and their way is wrong. And the reality is, is that scripture tells us, to us that only God has the right to make that kind of judgment. Only God has the right to call things good and evil, right and wrong. So when we put on this robe, we are falling in the trap of the original sin. Yes, judgment is at the very root of the sinful nature. It's at the very root of the fall of humanity. When the serpent came to Eve, he tempted her to eat of that forbidden fruit. And she told him that God had said we should not touch that. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent responds, Eve, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat of it, 
Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The essence of sin is that we try to play God. We don the judge's robe and we pick up the gavel and we assess and evaluate everything around us from our limited, finite, even biased perspective. The original sin is assuming the power to judge good and evil. In a sense, we're creating our own little kingdoms. You know, in ancient history, it was the right of the king to be able to decide the laws and the decrees of his land. And anyone that was within his kingdom had to follow those laws and decrees. Anyone who came in contact with his kingdom needed to abide by those laws. And so when we put on this robe, we are removing God from the throne, and we are stepping in, we are creating our own little kingdoms. And then we start to judge other people. We start to assess other people in terms of good and evil, depending on how well they serve our kingdom and follow our rules, follow our decrees. We become our own little kingdom, and we set our own little rules, and it is the original sin. It is eating of that fruit of the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil. In the garden, the only thing that God told Adam and Eve not to do was to eat of this fruit. And yet even today, it's the very thing that we do the best. It's the very thing that we do the best. This is not the community that God intended for us. This is not what Jesus wants for us. What is the distinguishing characteristic of a disciple of Christ? The distinguishing characteristic is love. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 35 through 40, when he's in a conversation with the teachers of the law, one of them came to him and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God's original plan was to be able to display his love through fellowship with us. And sin sidetracked that plan. When we ate of that tree, when we ate of that fruit, we sidetracked God's plan. When Jesus came, he created the path to restore fellowship to God. He created a way for us to once again be able to express God's love in fellowship with him. So how will they know that we are disciples of Jesus? How will they know that we have chosen to follow his path? They will know it because we will look like Jesus. They will know it because we will look like love. Yes, there is justice, and justice is a key part of this too, but God's justice is not about passing judgment and condemnation on people who have violated the laws. God's goal is not to, pres to preserve the rules. God's goal is to preserve relationship. And God's justice is characterized by love because God is love. And he cannot go against who he is. He cannot go against his character. So all of God's justest acts are characterized by love. Restoring the wrongs that have been done can only be restored by restoring relationships. That's how God restores wrongs, is he restores relationships. And all of this focus on love and community and all of this focus on relationships is not 
in the absence of being able to speak into each other's lives. So what I'm not talking about here is a no-talk rule that says that you can't speak into each other's lives when you see something that is going on. When you discern through love that something is happening in someone's life, it's not saying that you can't talk about it. But it's like this. You walk along and you see a friend and they're sinking in this quicksand. You discern that the quicksand is there, and you see them in the quicksand. If you stand there on the sidelines and say, hmm, you should get out of there. It's not really a good place to be. Why don't you just hurry up and get yourself out of there? If they follow your advice, what's going to happen to them? They will sink, and they will die. They will sink, and they will die. You know what? When we are caught in the quicksand, and we're sinking, most of the time we know it. We know that we're in the quicksand. We know that we're not where we want to be, and we so desperately want to get out of it, but we don't know how. Having someone come alongside and stand on the sidelines and point out what we already know is not helpful. <sighs> Instead, what we need to do is go and pick up that stick, that rope, whatever it is that's here on the side of the quicksand. And we need to go to the very edge of that quicksand and we need to lean down and offer that person the other end of that stick. And with our strength, combined with their strength, we pull them out of the quicksand. We pull them out of the quicksand. That is what it means to bear one another's burdens. We cannot stand on the sidelines and just point out what is wrong. We need to get involved with people. We need to bear one another's burdens. And you know what? In order for us to be able to go to the edge of the quicksand, in order for us to be able to speak into their lives, in order for us to be able to hold them accountable and to discern what's going on in their life, we may have to neutralize some of our own assumptions about the quicksand. We might have to neutralize some of our own assumptions about how the person got into the quicksand. And we might have to take a look at the filters by which we're passing judgment on what's going on in this situation. And we might have to ask God, are these filters of you or do I need to let them go? Because most of the time they're based on the fact that we're wearing this robe. The most important thing for us to do before we go and help out our friend in the quicksand is to take this robe off. It's got to come off because you cannot help someone out of the quicksand when you're wearing that robe. It's got to come off and it's got to stay in the closet and not come out. That's where it needs to stay. Once we take that robe off, then we can get involved in each other's mess. Then we can get involved in each other's life and help each other out and bear one another's burdens. But as we start living in community, as we start living out what this really, really means, I mean, all of us can sit here right now and say yes to that. But when we start getting involved in each other's messes, it gets a little messy. Have you ever noticed that? It's a real dilemma because whenever I'm going to get involved with you and you're going to get involved with me, somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to do something that hurts somebody else. And it is going to get messy. And the mud is going to start flying. And when the mud starts flying, we become really good storytellers. You all know the good elements of a story. The elements of good and evil. And as the story climaxes and there's the conflict between good and evil and good triumphs over evil and everybody lives happily ever after. It's a good story, right? 
Well, most of us have figured out that happily ever after doesn't really happen. And we're not too bought into the happy endings that Hollywood tries to sell us. But when I feel hurt, and when there is an offense that has happened, and when somebody breaks our rules, and it affects us, our stories start sounding an awful lot like a fairy tale. Our stories start sounding like this childhood fairy tale that we've been told all of our life. We start talking about the other person, the one who did it. It was such a bad thing. And we start creating a character for them of a dragon. A dragon that is so evil, that is so insensitive, that has done all these awful, horrible things. They have wronged us, they have hurt us, and they have taken the power over us. The very words that they breathe are like fire from the dragon. We start painting the picture of them as a dragon. And when we give them all the power, when we make it all their fault, when we say that they are the ones that are holding us captive by this evil thing that they have done, there is only one role in the story for us left to assume, and that is the role of princess. <laughs> the good and the innocent princess. I have done no wrong, and yet the dragon has come and taken me captive. And I am helpless, and there is nothing that I can do in this situation. And we, we start repeating our story. These characters just take on a lot more depth. We do a lot of character development as we share our story with others and we talk about the dragon and we talk about what it's like to be the princess and how awful it is to be trapped in the high tower waiting for someone to come and rescue us. And we enjoy the role of princess in some ways because it's a way for us to try and feel better. But you know what? Our story just doesn't seem to turn out like the fairy tales do. We keep waiting for that happy ending, and it never comes. Because our story is just a whole lot more complicated than a fairy tale. It's a whole lot more complicated. And you know what? The categories that we have assigned in our story of good and evil just aren't as clear-cut as they are in the fairy tale. They aren't as clear-cut as we see in the movies. And even though we try and tell our story and paint the picture of good and evil, you know, in our heart we know that that's not really true, that those categories aren't as clear-cut as we try to make them be. We know that the categories are a lot more fuzzy than that. And so we struggle because our fairy tale is starting to break down and we don't know what to do. I would like to show you a short little video clip of a fairy tale that has gone awry. Fear's a 
a sensible response to an unfamiliar situation. Unfamiliar dangerous situation, I might add. And with a dragon that breathes fire, it's nice to breathe fire. It sure doesn't mean you're a coward if you're a little scared, you know what I mean? Because I sure as heck ain't no coward, I know that. Donkey, two things, okay? Shut up. Now go over there and see if you can find any stairs. Stairs? I thought we was looking for the princess. The princess will be up the stairs in the highest room in the tallest tower. What makes you think she'll be there? I read it in a book once. Well, cool. You handle the dragon, I'll handle the stairs. Well, at least we know where the princess is. But where's the dragon? <laughs> Are you Princess Fiona? I am. Awaiting a knight so bold as to rescue me. Oh, that's nice. Now let's go! But wait, Sir Knight! This beeth our first meeting. Should it not be a wonderful, romantic moment? Yeah. Sorry, lady. There's hey, no time. Hey, wait! What are you doing? You, you know, you should sweep me off my feet out yonder window and down a rope onto your valiant steed. You've had a lot of time to plan this, haven't you? Mm -hmm. How much time do we plan spending our fairy planning our fairy tale rescue? I mean, it's a great story. It's the way stories are supposed to go, right? There's the princess held captive by the evil dragon, and the prince comes in and rescues the princess, slays the dragon, and they both live happily ever after. That's the way we've always planned for it to go, and but most of us have figured out in life that it doesn't work that way. So why do we tend to revert back to this fairy tale way of handling life when we know it doesn't work? Most of us don't want to be the princess. Most of us don't want to be helpless. We don't want to be powerless. We want out of that. But we're caught in the fairy tale cycle. We're caught in the judgment cycle. The reason that we assume the role of princess is because we feel shame. We have set up these rules and regulations. We've set up these terms of what's right and what's wrong. And when we fail, when we can't measure up to the standards that we have set for ourselves, we feel shame. And so that shame that we feel drives us to hide. And we must hide because we don't want anyone else to know who we really are and what we've really done. 
We hide within, behind different costumes, like the judge's costumes or the princess tiara. And we hide behind these costumes because we don't want anyone else to know what's really there. But there is no life in judgment. There's no life. It does not give us life at all. And so we're in isolation. And what we feel the need to do, we feel the drive to perform. And performance looks different for each of us. For some of us, we perform by doing good works and pleasing people. Others of us perform by being the rebel, always screwing up, always standing out. That's how we perform. That's how we get life. Some of us do it by portraying ourselves as helpless, maybe even self-sabotaging our success so we can stay in that helpless state. But we do it because we're trying to get life. We are driven by the shame. And every time we try and perform and we fail, we will once again feel shame and we just get caught in this vicious, vicious cycle of judgment. Well, there is freedom from this cycle. And Luke talks about it. If we go back to that scripture in Luke that we started with today, it talks about how to break this messy cycle. The cycle can be broken by grace and forgiveness. And it is a good measure of grace, pressed down, shaken together, running over, spilled out onto our lap. That's the kind of grace that will break this cycle. That is where we experience freedom from this cycle. Instead of wearing the fairy tale glasses, we need to pull them off and we might need to look at life. We might need to look at the situation differently. Instead of seeing ourselves as all good and the other person as all evil, we need to take off the judge's robe. We need to shed our princess identity. We need to take off the tiara. Set it down and no longer become the princess. We need to no longer hide behind the judgment of the dragon. In fact, we may need to even look differently at the dragon. You know, the dragon might not be all in the wrong. And there might not be more to the story. Yes, maybe what the dragon did was really awful and really hurtful. But maybe there's more to the story that we haven't yet uncovered. And maybe if we were to take the time to uncover more about that story, we would find empathy for the dragon. And you know what? Our own stance and the way we look at ourselves may also need to change. Maybe our stance needs to be one of humility. Humility that says, you know what? I might not have been totally perfect in that situation. I might not have done everything right. And we might have to give up our standards of perfection that we try and hold ourselves and others to and confess that we make mistakes and maybe even give room for other people to mess up, room for other people to make mistakes. This is how we build relationships, is we have to live through the mess. We have to work our way through the mess. And in the same way that judgment comes back on us, when we judge, we will be judged. In the same way, the grace cycle works like that. When we give grace, it will be returned to us. When we give forgiveness, it will be returned to us. And the messy relationships that we experience can be transformed by grace. Jesus has given us a new image. He's given us a new identity. Once we choose to follow his path 
to fellowship with God, to expressing God's love in relationship with God, he gives us a new image for how we're supposed to relate with others. And that is not the image of a judge. It's not the image of a princess. It's the image of his bride. And that's how he wants to be thinking about us. And that's how he wants us to think about each other. It is not an individual picture. I am not his bride and you're not his bride. We're his bride. It's a communal picture. We have to do it together. As the church, as his church, we are the bride. In Jesus' day, once a man and a woman were betrothed in marriage, the husband-to-be would go for a year to get ready for their life together, to create a life for them after the marriage. The responsibility of the bride during that year was to get ready for the wedding celebration. That was her job, to prepare for the wedding feast. And the dress was a key part of that preparation. Once a woman was betrothed, the whole village would come together to help her make this gown. It was a communal thing. All of the women in the village would come together, each bringing different parts of the gown, and they would work on it together. And even if they worked on different parts of it in their home, they would still come together to put that dress together. It was creating that beautiful gown for the bride to start her marriage with the groom. And they did it together. Some of them made costly sacrifices in order to make this gown as beautiful as possible. They would make personal sacrifices in order to purchase the right material, the right thread. They would give of their own time and their own energy to contribute to the beauty of this gown. Can you imagine a group of women getting together and trying to decide amongst all of their differences how to make the gown beautiful? All the different kinds of threads and materials that they would have had to put together. Sounds a little messy, doesn't it? But imagine how beautiful that gown was when they finished and how proud that bride would feel of the accomplishments when the groom returned. And as they worked on that dress, as they worked on that gown, it would have to have been stuff that they would have had to work through those messes quick because the groom is coming back. There's a sense of urgency. They only have a short period of time before the groom returns, and the dress has to be ready. They have to get that dress ready. The image of his bride is, is that we are in this preparation. We need to be preparing as his church for the wedding feast. And the dress that we must prepare together, the dress that we prepare as a community, is about our right relationships with one another. It's about cleaning up some of these messes and allowing grace and forgiveness to break the judgment cycle. That's what making this beautiful dress is all about for us. That is what it is about, to be his bride, waiting for the groom to come back. And it is all for the love of the groom that we do this. I have a short reading that I want to read to you. It was written by a colleague and a friend of mine, and it moved me so much. There's a PowerPoint slide that just goes with this, and I just want you to listen and look at the pictures. The bride of Christ, I can now say with authority of experience, is not dressed in a traditional western white wedding gown. The bride is wearing something that looks like Jacob's coat of many colors. Imagine a garment made with fabric that's passed from one weaver to another, each one adding threads of mohair, dog hair, silk, polyester, and more. Being kind of practical about clothes, the question that comes to my mind is, 
What kind of care instructions could possibly be on the tag of a garment like that? If every fiber requires different treatment, where does that leave us? So also, the practical question comes to my mind. How can we come together in community with each other in a spirit of honoring one another when even our concepts of the term community are so varied and unique? These are the questions that can stump us and discourage us as we try to build the kind of community that Jesus intended for us. But imagine, just for a moment, what it would be like, how that garment would be so beautiful, and the beauty of that bride when the garment is woven together with all of our differences intact. The garment is woven together by us learning how to get through the messiness of these relationships. Jesus' goal is to acquire for himself a bride a bride that can display his unsurpassable love. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to require forgiveness and grace and lots of it. It's going to require bearing one another's burdens. And it's going to require working through the differences that we have because of the love of the groom. We can't get caught in the surface judgments. We can't fall into the trap of putting on the judge's robe or the princess's tiara, making the decisions about right and wrong, putting ourselves in place of God at the throne and deciding what our own little kingdoms are. We need to serve his kingdom. It's about following him. It's about following the path that Jesus created for us. And the wedding is coming. The wedding is coming and the groom is coming back, so we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Revelations 19, 7 and 8 says, Let us rejoice and be glad. And give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. The righteous acts of God's people are not our worldly categories of right and wrong. It's not our worldly categories of good and evil. It's not about judging what is righteous and what is not. Our wedding garment is about right relationships. It's about working through these messes and learning how to give grace and forgiveness to each other. In this community, we have a responsibility to weave together this beautiful gown because we are his bride. We are his bride and we desire and want to reflect the love of Jesus. We need to see ourselves as one bride. When I speak about you, I'm speaking about me. I cannot become like Jesus. I cannot reflect his love without you. And you cannot do that without me. We are one bride together. And that is where the beauty comes in to the mess. Such beauty is only possible when we do it together. I'd like you to be able to go and leave this place with this image of a bride in your mind. Meditate on it today. What does it mean for you to be the bride of Christ? What does it mean for you to be the bride of Christ with your family? What does it mean for that with your small group, with your church? What does it mean for you to be part of the Woodland Hills bride? What does that mean? 
I'd like you to meditate on that as you go. I'm going to close this in prayer. If there's somebody here who would like to come forward and just receive prayer, we'll have altar workers here available at the altar. And we invite you to come down and just pray about any need that you have in your life. Maybe there's something that just landed on you today and you'd like to pray it through with someone. Feel free to come up. Maybe during the worship service, God spoke to you in a way and you'd like to share that with someone. Please come forward. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for this image of a bride that you've given to us. Lord, I ask that you will help me to know what it means to be a bride of Christ in community with my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you will just show me how to make it through these messes. Lord, show me how to grant grace and forgiveness when I feel like it's so hard to do. Lord, I pray that you will help me not to take on the role of princess, not to take on the role of judge, and to just really be able to surrender to you, to leave that role to you, to leave that responsibility to you, and to really assume a stance of humility and grant grace and forgiveness, Lord. And I pray that prayer for each of us today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. That's why we love you. Come on.